Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And this is Stuff You Should Know, Flying Solo Edition. I was going to not say anything and just <laughs> see if... Anyone out there would think I just wasn't here at all. <laughs> it's just me, everybody. People would be like, God, no, no. And this would be torment. like, what? Who yeah. cares? I don't know about that, man. Do you remember how berserk everyone went with that one jokey 3D printer? I know. April Fool's episode? April Fool's. Yeah. Poor Ben. <laughs> no, people were very respectful to Ben. They were like, <laughs> Ben, I really like you, but this is a travesty. <laughs> All right, so this is a pretty relevant topic. Oh, wait, hold on. Will you indulge me real quick? Sure. Speaking of Ben. Yeah. So so just I want to give a shout-out real quick. Ben and I worked on a um, How Stuff Works first ever fiction podcast Yeah. called The Control Group, and it's out. The first five episodes are out, and maybe by the time this comes out, we'll be releasing the last five once a week, um, and it's pretty good. It's set in the 60s. It's, it takes place in a mental asylum, uh, and there's a doctor who's running the show who is under the encouragement of a very shady organization, a secretive shady organization, starting to really go off the rails and lose his uh, ethics and, and morality. You and could say that. It's pretty engrossing. It's a really <laughs> engrossing, yeah, for sure. It's an engrossing um, radio drama, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, if you like our MK Ultra podcast episodes, uh, then this is kind of right up your alley. For sure. And it's really, really well done. The The acting is top-notch. Yeah. The music is really great. The sound effects are great. It really sucks you in. So go check it out on iTunes, uh, The Control Group. And um, if you like it, leave a nice review maybe if you want. Yeah. Whatever. Even if you just go and enjoy it, that's all I'm asking you to do. Agreed. Okay. Thanks for indulging me, Charles. Of course. So we're moving on to... Attorney-client privilege, which is something that I knew just about everything about, it turns out. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because <laughs> there, there's not that much to it. I mean, there's some nuance here or there, but basically everybody yeah. knows what it is. Yeah, but here's the thing. There is nuance because our legal system here in the United States and in Canada um, are very much based on precedent and legal precedent. Mm -hmm. And attorney-client privi privilege is not... It's not something that was laid out in the Constitution. No. So it's something we've had to formulate over the years uh, through precedent on prior cases to kind of figure out all the nuances that you were talking about. That's right. It, it's just it, since it comes from English common law, that means it's a very old custom. But since, like you're saying, it's not enshrined in the Constitution, you can't point to it and be like, here are the rules of attorney-client privilege. You have to work it out through court cases over the years. Yeah. Should we talk about that very first one or the, the very first one that mattered? Yeah, for sure. And do you remember the story from the revenge episode we did? Was that what this was? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It did smack of something that I had heard before. Pretty fascinating. So, so tell it to him. All right, so this is 1743, and prior to this, there had been references to attorney-client privilege, but I saw here that only 14 reported decisions on this predate uh, this 1743 case. So it wasn't something trotted out there a lot. But uh, uh, Annesley v. 
Anglesia. I would say Anglesey. Anglesey? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, I guess you could pronounce it Anglesia, huh? <laughs> it's Annesley, Jennifer Aniston versus Julio Iglesias. <laughs> well, regardless, it's let's just say AVA. Okay. Uh, is a very pivotal trial because it pitted, this is a story of inheritance uh, when there was a man named Arthur who died and his brother, Richard, said, you know what, I'm due to inherit this estate because my brother didn't have any kids. <laughs> but it was very inconvenient when someone named James showed up and said, no, 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 I am his long lost son and rightful heir. He said, and that's where the story kicks off. Right. So James, it turns out, was very much telling the truth. Um, He says, not only is this guy a jerk, he knows full well that I'm the rightful heir because he got rid of me when I was a mere 12-year-old pup. Yeah. Growing up in England, all of a sudden I found myself kidnapped. Suddenly, this is like um, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson book, right? Sure. So he's kidnapped and sent off to Delaware to live as an indentured servant for 13 years. Yeah, which might as well have been Siberia at the time. Exactly. I mean, still, kind (laughs) of. And he's working it off as a, like, he just basically said, this is my fate. So he worked for 13 years as an indentured servant and worked it off and made his way down to Jamaica at age 25 and then made his way back to England to claim his inheritance. So he shows up, and his uncle, uh, Richard, who was the Earl of, well, Anglesia, mm-hmm. or Anglesey, one of the two, and um, he said, he said, this guy is a fraud. I'm the rightful heir. So first of all, Richard thinks he got rid of this kid forever. Now all of a sudden the kid shows up, and he does another even dastardly thing and frames him for murder, I guess. Yeah, he was. There was this accident that happened, and Earl got his attorney, uh, one John Gifford, to kind of go for a murder prosecution, even though he knew that the death was an accident. So, like you said, he sort of framed it up in such a way that he could really get rid of this kid, now a young adult, and uh, even said in pretrial hearings of his nephew, he would give a ten thousand pounds to have him hanged. Yeah, and how this all relates back to attorney-client privileges is that, like we said, Gifford was his attorney and was sort of in on this thing. And when it all came out, the attorney was the one, the only person really that could give testimony Mm -hmm. that this happened. And uh, the original uh, Uncle Dick said, (laughs) no, 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 this is attorney-client privilege. This is protected, and it would violate that. It went all the way to to court, and they said, no, 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 That's, that's not the case. I'm sorry to tell you. Yeah, because uh, Annesley um, argued that, or his lawyer argued that um, the, these other things, the kidnapping that the lawyer helped arrange, the, um, the, the statement about how he would have him hanged for 10,000 pounds, that had nothing to do with the inheritance. Yep. And what we were talking about here was the inheritance, and thus that shouldn't be protected communication between the client and his attorney. And the court said, you know what? I don't even care what you just said. Yeah. This story is so bonkers, <laughs> and that guy is so patently evil. Yeah. I'm going to rule in favor of you. And the, the first ruling, the first major, clear, concise ruling on uh, attorney-client privilege was registered in 1743. Right. So the whole idea behind attorney, attorney-client privilege is to give you the assurance as a client that you can speak to your attorney mm-hmm. in private 
and that's very key, as we'll find out later. Yeah. Uh, in private, without fear that they will then use that information against you somehow. Or that that information can be extracted from them under threat of, say, jail time or something. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, it's defined pretty well in this other article you sent. It's where legal advice of any kind is sought from a professional legal advisor uh, in his or her capacity as such. The communications relating to that purpose made in confidence by the client mm-hmm. are at his or her instance permanently protected from disclosure uh, by the client or by the legal advisor except uh, the protection be waived. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a pretty big mouthful. But what it's basically saying is that if you commit a crime or commit a tort, which is basically a civil a civil act against somebody that they can sue you for. <laughs> if you if you commit either one of those and you say, oh, God, I need a lawyer, and you go to a lawyer and say, I want you to be my lawyer, and the lawyer says, okay, go ahead, and you start talking, say, you tell them everything. You admit to guilt. You admit to everything. It doesn't matter what you've admitted to. That that speech, that communication, that conversation is to stay between you and your lawyer forever, even after your death, they've ruled, as we'll see, and that you, the client, are the only person who can waive that right, that privilege of that communication. So that your lawyer has to take it to their grave, even after you're dead, as long as you say, I, as long as you never waive that right. Yeah, and that what you just said would satisfy one of the four basic elements necessary here, which is one, it was a communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, it was made between the privileged persons, that is, you and, and the attorney. Uh, it was made in confidence, and this one's really important. It's for the purpose of seeking or obtaining uh, legal assistance. So it's you can't. it doesn't count if you go to your pal who's a lawyer and ask them for legal advice if you're not retaining them for their services. That's a big one. That's a really big one. Even if you do go to a pal and retain them as a lawyer officially, or even if your lawyer's not your pal and you retain them as a lawyer. If you say, I committed this crime, I need your help to cover it up, that's not protected either. Correct. You also can't go to your lawyer and say, um, hey, I've been thinking that we could come up with a pretty great real estate scam with your lawyering skills and my, <laughs> my scamming skills. Let's come up with something. That would not be protected either because it's a crime. It's, uh, you're planning a crime. Either planning a crime or covering up a crime, you just lost your, your privilege, your attorney-client privilege. All right. Should we take a break? I think so. That's a good little overview, and we'll come back and talk about all the ins and outs right after this. All right, Chuck. So we're back. We're talking about some ins and outs. Yeah, and and, and exceptions. And you you mentioned one that you would probably that would probably fall under the crime fraud exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's the uh, in our own article the the thing they reference here is like, hey, let's set up a phony company um, f- as a front. Mm-hmm. Can you help me do that as an attorney? Right. Then there is obviously no protection there. 
of, of attorney-client privilege. Right. Or I want you to go make this bribe to a, an elected official or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's if it's on the law books as a crime, you're you're you just lost your privilege. Yeah, and another way it can get gray too is if um, lawyers do a lot of things for people. It's mm-hmm. not always providing legal counsel. So this is where it can get a little a little hinky on both sides. You can have a communicative act, but uh, as they say in our article, business is business and the law is the law. Right. You know, it's only pertaining to legal matters, not if your attorney is doing some sort of business deal for you. Right. And that really comes in play more for corporate law, sure. which is they're really big into attorney-client privilege because they're frequently letting their client or their attorney in on um, tax evasion, um, maybe selling, knowingly selling tainted products, or even like on the more innocent end of the spectrum, like trade secrets, sure, um, intellectuals, property secrets. Uh, and a business attorney will have a lot of knowledge about their company or their client's business that you just don't want them going and spilling the beans, even in open court, right? So that, but that's where you want it. You want that very much if you're a company with your corporate lawyer. But in the same time, as far as the the courts have said over the years, that's very, very murky because what constitutes legal advice? What constitutes business advice? Sometimes it's clear, you know, like what's our, what is our legal implication for this tax evasion that we just found out our accounting department did? Yeah. That would be protected. Not, um, uh, I don't know. Help us help us figure out some ways to evade our taxes or even even beyond that, even legal ways. Help us figure out some legal ways to evade our taxes. That might not cut muster because that's more business than law. You could make an argument. Yeah. And, and like we, like I said earlier, it can get super gray as to far as far as whether or not you have obtained the services of an attorney. Because mm-hmm. this can come about in a lot of ways. Uh, like if you have to or you're trying to prove this in court, you can bring an engagement letter, um, some sort of contract that you've signed that outlines fees uh, or just the relationship. Uh, it can be an oral agreement um, as long as it's, you know, both sides are acknowledging that. Uh, it could be that they have appeared for you in court. Um, like, you, you know, you don't go to court that first day like your attorney goes on your behalf right. and like file some something for you in court. Uh, some sort of document, then that is an official expressed acknowledgement. So there are all kinds of ways that you can have an attorney officially represent you, but it has to go beyond just sitting in a room and saying, like, I could use a little advice. Like, you have to agree that you're engaging one another. Right. Um, So our non-legal legal advice to you that is not legal advice in any way, shape, or form (laughs) is if you ever hire a lawyer, doesn't matter what kind of lawyer it is, before you tell them anything, say, I would like to take you on as my lawyer. Will you take me on as your client? And if they say yes, everything after that is now privileged as long as you're not planning a crime, right? Yes, and you'll know that happens because they start a little timer on their desk that <laughs> right. ticks up little dollar bill clinks. <laughs> but even even without um, an express, say, like an engagement letter or even them expressly saying, yes, I'm your lawyer – Um, I I think courts have kind of found over the years that there are certain things that a person could reasonably expect that the the lawyer has agreed to represent them, right? Sure. Like if if you go to a lawyer that you've used before um, and but you aren't currently engaged with 
and they they start doling out legal advice because you told them your problem, the, a court would probably find that you had an attorney-client relationship and therefore there is attorney-client privilege. Um, if they quote you fees and then follow up with some advice, same thing. It's more just like the client can't unilaterally say, oh, we had an attorney-client relationship, so this is protected. There has to be some sort of sign or signal from the lawyer as well that that there's a, a relationship there. Yeah, and speaking of signs or signals, uh, apparently it doesn't even have to be like a verbal communication mm-hmm. that uh, like you could look at your attorney and say like, well, you could ask them a question and they could just sort of give you a wink and tap their nose and that could be used in court. You know, they don't have to expressly say something out loud even. No, that can't be used in court. That's protected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what what I mean. I mean, that would come up, but it doesn't have to. Yeah, I think I just confused everybody. But But yeah, you don't even have to be talking. Like if if they say, did you kill that person? Yeah. And you nod, that's protected communication. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, Or I think they've even found that like a... um, a silence, like a complete silence, is protected communication too, because you're not you're not denying it. <laughs> Things left unsaid. Pretty much, yeah. Because if somebody's like, "Did you kill that person?" and you didn't, you're going to say, "Hell no, I didn't kill that person. Get me out of this." Yeah. If you're just completely silent, mm, I think a reasonable person might take that as an admission of guilt. Yeah. But it's still a protected communication between you and your lawyer. Should we talk about People versus Meredith? I think so. People v. Meredith. Sure. So this was in California in 1976, and a man named Michael Meredith uh, convinced his friend Frank Scott to uh, commit a crime, which was, let's jump this guy, uh, Mr. David Wade. Uh, They ended up shooting and killing him. I don't know if that was the original intent, but that's what happened. Uh, They ran for it. They got arrested, uh, found and arrested, and then they were in jail. So Scott's appointed counsel was uh, one Mr. James Schenck, And he went by to talk, and they were kind of chit-chatting around. And uh, Scott said something about a wallet. He was like, yeah, we got the wallet from the victim. We split the money up and put it in a trash can. The lawyer then sends an investigator and actually found that wallet and took it and gave it to the cops. Mm -hmm. So obviously this was a key piece of evidence that ended up – well, I mean it ended up backfiring because his client rightfully went to prison. Right. But Schenck was subpoenaed and said, you're going to be found in contempt of court unless you admit like how this thing went down and how you got this wallet. And the whole key here is if he had never went and got the wallet, then it mm-hmm. still would have been attorney-client privilege. Yeah, because all he did was receive information right. in confidence from his client. It was when he basically broke through into the real world mm-hmm. and manipulated evidence that's when all that just changed everything and apparently broke the broke the veil or the privilege of that communication. Well, yeah, which is rightfully so, because the courts, I believe this one, yeah, went all the way to the California Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ruled rightfully that you can't do this because all this is going to do, if we allowed it, it would incentivize defense attorneys to go out and like try and find evidence right. and collect it. And you don't want attorneys doing that. Yeah, because once they collected it, it would enter the veil of privacy and, and would be protected and you couldn't, you could never discover it. Yeah. Um, similarly, though, and I think I, I agree with you. I think that that's just logical and sensible. Like you can't, you can't allow attorneys to go do that kind of thing. Um, similarly, just because you communicated a fact 
doesn't mean that the fact itself is protected from discovery, just that your communication of that fact to your lawyer was protected. So if there's other ways to find out that you did something, and this seems just boneheadedly obvious, but apparently it was worth spelling out in at least one of these articles. If you said, yes, I killed that person, your lawyer can't tell anybody you said that to them. But if you said that to your wife, well, your coworker, (laughs) your coworker can go can go testify against you. So it's not like the fact that you have admitted that you killed that person is protected. It's that the communication between you and your lawyer about that fact is what's protected. Right. So if it's otherwise discoverable, then it's fair game. Yeah. It's not like you can enshrine a fact with your lawyer and then it belongs to them and them only and the rest of the world can never learn of it legally speaking. Yeah. That's a good point. That doesn't make any sense, but I guess it was worth working out. Uh, You want to take a break? I think we shall. All right, we'll go back and talk about uh, this extending beyond the grave. All right, Chuck. So um, you have an, a, a relationship with your attorney. Mm-hmm. Your attorney is like ten years old at the time you hire him, mm-hmm. and uh, you're seventy. So you pass on before your lawyer. Well, it turns out that something comes up later on, and somebody wants info from your lawyer, private info that you gave them. Your lawyer says, "No way, Jose. This is covered by attorney-client privilege." That is true. Yeah, because that happened very famously with uh, Vincent Foster, who, uh, as most people know, was a big uh, – he worked for the Clintons in Arkansas. He was an attorney. He was one of their close attorneys, personal attorneys, I think. Yeah, so uh, he ended up killing himself. And if you if you have on your tinfoil hat or if you go to these conspiracy websites, then mm-hmm. – uh, then you firmly believe that Bill and Hillary Clinton murdered this man. With their bare hands. With their bare hands. (laughs) If you're a reasonable human, you know that he fell into clinical depression. And every single investigator and investigative unit, and there were quite a few, including uh, one Kenneth Starr, uh, went out and said, yes, he definitely committed suicide. Mm. Um, All the evidence is there. So uh, I feel like that's a spectrum. You You could be somewhere on that spectrum between those two beliefs. Oh, what, between thinking he killed himself and was murdered? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, he was obviously involved uh, in the infamous Whitewater real estate deal. And when Kenneth Starr was investigating this stuff, he tried to get his hands on notes uh, created by Foster's lawyer. And the lawyer said, no, attorney-client privilege, uh, even though this man is dead. And Mm -hmm. it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled six to three that it must be honored even after the grave. Yeah, I was really surprised that that was as recent as it was. I thought that that would have been a really old case that came up long ago. But, yeah, Yeah. that was from the 90s. I agree. So that one was established in, um, well, the 90s. I don't see when the actual case or when the Supreme Court ruled on it. Um, But that was was one thing that was tested in court. There was another one um, that had to do with, uh, with, like, employees giving testimony for their company. For a oh, long yeah. time, it was if you hired, if you were a director level or a um, an executive level p- 
person in a company and you were talking to corporate counsel, whatever communication was being made was protected. But then cases started to come up like, what if somebody from accounting uh, was talking to corporate counsel about that case? Like, does, is that protected? And um, for a long time, there was this test called the control group test. Yeah. Appropriately, which was basically just, are you one of the people who is in a position to take the advice of legal counsel and either run with it or decide not to do with it? Are you like pretty high up in the company? And if you weren't, then that speech wasn't protected. But then over time, they decided that, no, one of the reasons why we have this privilege is that we want lawyers to be fully briefed on the facts of the case so that they can figure out the best defense or the best legal route to resolving this thing. Um, and if they're not fully informed, then we're kind of hamstringing our attorneys. So we want them to know everything, and they won't know everything unless people feel comfortable telling them everything, hence the attorney-client privilege. Well, they said that extends to employees as well because employees sometimes have information that members of that control group won't have. And as long as they're talking about something that directly reflects their job and the case at hand to that counsel, that would be considered protected by the by the attorney-client privilege. Yeah. That was the Upjohn ruling, I believe. Yeah, and just this year, um, it's been making a lot of headlines because of the Mueller investigation uh, when uh, Trump's personal uh, attorney or one of his personal attorneys, uh, one Michael Cohen, had his office raided in April of this year, in two, uh, 2018, and the FBI seized all sorts of documents looking for evidence of bank fraud. It came back that it was part of the Mueller investigation and Trump starts tweeting about how attorney-client privilege is dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and the attorney that was quoted in this article said, no, it's not dead at all. This is very typical. What's going on is uh, there's a judge that has, uh, in the Cohen case, has appointed what they call a taint team, <laughs> <laughs> one of the more unfortunate, uh, unfortunately named teams. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they do, this is a third-party uh, what they call an arm's length group of qualified people. So they're not involved with, with anyone in this investigation. And they go through all the evidence gathered and say what's pertinent to the case, what's not pertinent, and here's the pertinent stuff. It's not like we're just trying to release everything ever said between these two men. Right. They're, and they, they, are, they take all the stuff they saw that didn't relate to the case to their grave. So it is a, a form, an extension of attorney-client privilege. Yeah, and especially in the in the Cohen case, this uh, this attorney goes on to say because Cohen was performing little to no actual legal work for Trump, um, not much of what was seized in the raid would be protected anyway. Mm, gotcha. So that's what this uh, attorney says. That's his expert opinion. So can't you see like one member of the Taint team at the bar being like, "That's not what it means, Derek." <laughs> Quit saying that. It's really important <laughs> and vital. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. So we should uh, talk about another famous recent case of attorney-client privilege or attorney-client privilege being violated, actually, with the Jody Arias case. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about this one except that um, she murdered someone, right? Yes, in cold blood. Um, from what I read most recently, one of the alternate jurors believes that she killed her ex-boyfriend because he was breaking up with her and she wanted to be the last person he had sex with or the only person he had sex with or the last one of the two. Um, went 
off the rails, stabbed him like 28 to 29 times, cut his throat, shot him in the head, and just left him for dead and ran off to California and was caught within like a, a week or so of his body being discovered. So she, um, she mounted a, a defense that he was a pedophile, that he abused her, um, and that he was in the act of physically abusing her when she fought back right. and snapped and killed him. Uh, apparently, that, that was all just completely made up, that he wasn't a pedophile, he wasn't an abuser, and he was just trying to break up with her. That's the, the way it stands now. And she was convicted of, pre, I think, premeditated murder, uh, initially sentenced to death. Uh, the mistrial was declared, and she ended up with life without the possibility of parole. So that's where it stands now. Yeah. She um, publicly criticized her public defender, a guy named Kirk Nurmi. Uh-huh. And um, over the years, Kirk kind of put up with it and then was diagnosed with cancer and said, to hell with it. I'm writing a tell-all book. Is that why? That's what he says. He says that he was he had a, a, a bit of an epiphany, a reversal of his, his life in that cancer diagnosis and said, I might be dead. I can't let her be the only person telling the, si- the side of the story. Yeah, because he's saying like a canary in this book. Oh, yeah, man. He he revealed stuff that didn't come out at trial. He, he gave his own personal assessment of her guilt, that she was definitely guilty. Talked about how her mother lying on the stand for her was laughable. Um, just all sorts of stuff. Just ripped apart their attorney-client privilege. And so as a result, she's suing him big time. So that's still in the middle of, uh, I mean, this hasn't been decided, right? Not as far as I know. I think the article I read was from 2018, so I don't think it's been decided yet. Wow. I, I think he—and he's defending himself, saying, no, when she gave public interviews and talked about our private attorney-client conversations, right. she revoked privilege. She gotcha. waived her privilege in doing so. And so I'm free to tell anybody anything about it. So the, the California bar, the Arizona bar, I think, disbarred him. Uh, he agreed to disbarment without admitting misconduct. And now he's like a life coach or a professional coach for lawyers. Interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, the whole thing's super interesting. Her case is just gut-wrenching. Oh, um, yeah. And the, 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 this, this new piece of it, he basically hates her. Yeah. Hates her. He says that he was forced into the smear campaign as a defense, that he didn't want to have anything to do. He just hates her guts. And even her defense team said that that he's developed some bizarre hatred of her. And he, he said in this quote in this Reuters article that um, he was he, he was standing up to years of uh, abuse from her. So it's wow. like a, a deep seated hatred. Um one way or another, they ruined each other's lives. I think she blames him for botching her defense. Right. He blames her, apparently, for a whole whole slate of stuff. So, so this will probably be another precedent setter, huh? I would guess so, but it's a, it's a civil case. So, yeah, it could still set precedent. But, yeah, the fact that he was disbarred, that doesn't bode well for him. But I have the feeling he's like, I'm uh, dying of cancer, so whatevs. Right. Yeah. Screw it. So that's attorney-client privilege. I don't think we missed anything, did we? I don't think so. There are probably little nitpicky things here and there. It is uh, – there are some, definitely some gray areas, but it's been shaped and reformed over the years. I imagine it will continue to be somewhat. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, one more thing I want to say is um, I read – and this is kind of apropos, but not really. I read an article probably about six months ago, maybe a little longer. It was by a lawyer. You know how, like, lawyers will – 
write like blog posts or articles or oh, stuff yeah. for like their clients just on general stuff. This one lawyer wrote one about how if you ever talk to the FBI without a lawyer, you are an idiot. Well, sure. And he put it like that. <laughs> but no, he he makes this really great case for why most people, especially innocent people, would would think I don't need a lawyer. And he said everyone needs a lawyer when they're talking to the FBI. Yeah. And he laid out this really exquisite case, multiple point case, why, to where by the end of it you're like, oh, yeah, you need a lawyer if you're talking to the FBI. It's pretty pretty amazing stuff. He's like, you're not qualified to talk to the FBI. A lawyer can make you qualified. You can't go in there and expect to be qualified. It was really fascinating. I don't remember who wrote it, but I think if you search something like if you don't have a lawyer and speak to the FBI, you're an idiot, something along those lines. It was fascinating. Just call 1-800-FED-PROTECT. (laughs) (laughs) Josh will patch you through. For the people. (laughs) Uh, You got anything else? Nope. Okay. Well, if you want to know more about uh, attorney-client privilege, you can type that word in the search bar, How Stuff Works. And since I said privilege, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I do have one more thing to say without getting too much on a soapbox. Like, uh-huh. I hope people take the time like, to understand something like attorney-client privilege because when the president is tweeting out things and all exclamation points like attorney-client privilege is dead, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people believe that to be true. Yeah. When they don't even really understand the the true legal sense of what this means. You know? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you, man. It's just like it's misinformation that people think like a tweet is, is means, well, that's a fact. You know? Right. And it's yeah. not. It's a tweet. Yeah, I know. Something typed out on a phone. <laughs> like, do better, people. <laughs> Fat fingers sometimes, too. All right. So moving on, I'm going to call this uh, Mercury Bobcat. Yeah, I saw this one. Hey, guys, been listening for about a year, and I just listened to the Ford Pinto Death Trap episode. Uh, to put this timeline into context, I was born in 1993. This is what makes this story perfect, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, my family had a powder blue Mercury Bobcat, sister car to the Pinto. Mm-hmm. Like you said, my dad sold the car and bought it back eight years later, just before my 16th birthday. And I drove this car for two years in high school, eventually selling it to buy a vehicle uh, compatible with highway travel because a bobcat could not top 90 uh, kilometers per hour. Which is, what, like 20 miles an hour? I don't even know. Something like that. Uh, While I knew the Pinto was generally regarded as unsafe, I somehow did not know the extent of the carnage (laughs) until listening to the episode that you guys did. Mm -hmm. And after listening, I can't believe my parents ever allowed me to get behind the wheel of this car, although mine was a 78, so maybe that time they had faith in the upgraded flaming death bolts. Uh, it's been about seven years, and this dude, he was born in 93. He was driving this old car around well after its prime. Yeah, he would have been driving it in the 2000s. <laughs> like, that's great. Yeah. I was like me. I had a 68 Beetle when I was in the 80s, and everyone just thought I was weird. With the ankle burner? Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's been about seven years since I let the car go. I'm now 24. My friends and I miss the car so much, I frequently search uh, the Canadian version of Craigslist. Uh, called Kijiji, hoping to buy it back. It's so it's made up. I love this guy. What, that Kijiji? guy just—he just said some code <laughs> word that we just said on air. Uh, the Bobcat never went up in flames, but it did burn. Uh, we did burn it up in it oh, a few gosh. times. I hear you, man. And I this think is, I know what you mean. This is uh, Owen from Nova Scotia. 
And uh, I think that's pretty great. And I, I hope you get to buy that car back, dude. Yeah, good luck in your quest, Owen. Anybody out there in SYSK land, if you know where Owen's Bobcat is, help him out. Yeah, Let seriously. us know and we'll connect you. Same with my 68 Beetle. Oh, that'd be something. I'd like to buy that thing back. Well, if you guys know the um, VIN number, just shout it out. <laughs> you and Owen. Okay? Agreed. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me and Chuck, you can hang out with us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com, and there you will find links to all of our many myriad social media sites. And in the meantime, while you're doing that, if you want to dash off an email, you can send that thing to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 